UNFTR. Does ChatGPT represent a breakthrough that will spawn new businesses, or is it more of a gimmick? SVB, the 16th largest bank in the U.S. with $175 billion in deposits, is now the biggest American bank to fail since the 2008 financial crisis. It's not just 10,000 jobs being cut, but Meta is also scrapping the 5,000 open roles that they were advertising for. And, and, and you go really quickly to the question of why, right? And, and then in their buried and in the regulatory filing is they've lowered their expenses forecast for this year to a range of 86 to $92 billion. Um, so clearly they needed to go deeper to reduce that, that cash burn and spend. Um, um, while the world around them changes. Listen to us talk, we're a world renowned. Download our podcast where you will consume all the doom and gloom from 99 and Max. Many sound design always inspires to your heart's desire. Hey man, you know there's nothing that we lack. Past your ears into your mind, through the heart, all the facts. On your podcasting app comes a basic white man with a rusty microphone in his red right hand. Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by overcaffeinated members Alfie and Flash, Awesome A, Asshole, Brie X, Cindy S, David MJ, Eric Wagner 101, Goat, G Wookie of Ohio, Joa, Cringy, Marco F, Maria from PR, Matthew, and Michelle H. We begin today with a quote from the great economist Joseph Schumpeter, who's credited with coining the term creative destruction to describe the effect of innovation on legacy industries and technology. Here to bring us in is friend and mentor of the show, the one and only Jay Tomlinson from Best of the Left. In our discussion of the theory of vanishing investment opportunity, a reservation was made in favor of the possibility that the economic wants of humanity might someday be so completely satisfied that little motive would be left to push productive effort still further ahead. A more or less stationary state would ensue. Capitalism, being essentially an evolutionary process, would become atrophic. There would be nothing left for entrepreneurs to do. They would find themselves in much the same situation as generals would in a society perfectly sure of permanent peace. The management of industry and trade would become a matter of current administration, and the personnel would unavoidably acquire the characteristics of a bureaucracy. Socialism of a very sober type would almost automatically come into being. There's a lot baked into this excerpt from Schumpeter's seminal work, Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy. First, he muses on the possibility that innovation might have a ceiling because humans no longer desire the next new thing. Hard to imagine given our rapidly consumptive behavior, but as my friend from Brooklyn says, there's too much good weed and free porn in the world today. A debauched sentiment, but real. But Schumpeter is also analyzing a system of innovation based upon needs, not wants. Necessity as the mother of invention and all of that. If not for an appetite to live longer, freer, easier, then what would compel organizations and people within an economic system to drive to innovate? Are we to become mere managers of a system, social and economic bureaucrats? 
Is that why billionaires are looking to space as an escape from the destruction that unfettered innovation and capitalism has wrought on Earth? The inevitability of sober socialism is just one of the countless musings that Schumpeter offers in his writings. Schumpeter is one of the crucial heirs of the Marxian tradition, though he breaks with Marx in key areas. Whereas Marx believed that capitalism would ultimately exploit the working class to the point of revolution, Schumpeter saw capitalism as inherently iterative and malleable due to the concept of creative destruction, and that the working class would not be entirely exploited. They would shift over time along a spectrum of activities within new markets generated by the creative destruction of old ones. But while the pair disagree on the journey, they arrive at much the same conclusion. As The Guardian's Adrian Daub writes, quote, while creative destruction is viable economically, its experience is too disorienting politically to allow capitalism to survive long-term. In the end, Schumpeter believed creative destruction makes capitalism unsustainable. Gradually and peacefully, through elections and legislative action, capitalism will yield to some form of socialism, end quote. UNFTR is also sponsored by overcaffeinated members Nathan E., Nathan Surst, Nettie Hugger One, Pete M., Rob Nasby, Rodrigo G., Ryan F., Sultan, Specker, Terry C., William N., W. Jeremy D., and the memory of Nettie McGee. Chapter 1. What is Creative Destruction? So now this episode asks the question whether Silicon Valley or the tech sector as a whole has reached peak innovation and whether or not we're approaching Schumpeter's vision of a peaceful and bureaucratic socialism. It's an interesting thought experiment, but one that cannot exist outside of the harsh reality that the capitalist system has brought challenges to the world more destructive than even Marx might have imagined. Modern theorists are left to grapple with the effects of climate change on the natural world, the cultures it supports, and the economies we function within. One of the primary resources for this episode is a book titled The Power of Creative Destruction, Economic Upheaval and the Wealth of Nations. The book is a collection of essays and lectures curated by Philippe Aguillon and other authors who seek to contextualize the role innovation plays in building capitalist economies. Importantly, the book takes a subdued but optimistic view of capitalism generally, so this is less about attacking the structure of it and more about analyzing the circumstances that allow capitalism to thrive and ways that it can be theoretically improved to benefit society. Aguillon and team, much like Schumpeter, are more clinical in their views of capitalism. That's not to say they don't have their own critiques. But the purpose of bringing their ideas forward today is to illustrate how capitalism functions within different social, cultural, and legal structures. As for the concept itself, creative destruction isn't all that complicated. What's far more interesting is trying to understand the circumstances that allow for it to occur. To wrap our minds around it, here's Agion's definition in plain terms. Quote, Creative destruction is the process by which new innovations continually emerge and render existing technologies obsolete. New firms continually arrive to compete with existing firms, and new jobs and activities arise to replace existing jobs and activities. Creative destruction is the driving force of capitalism, ensuring its perpetual renewal and reproduction, but at the same time generating risks and upheaval that must be managed and regulated." End quote. The horse and buggy being replaced by the automobile. Netflix replacing blockbuster video. Right, and so on. In each of these and the countless historical examples of creative destruction, 
More than the founding technology, there's always a supporting constellation of goods, services, and labor surrounding it. Agion refers to these as rents and renters. The saddle and horseshoe makers. VHS machines and the dude who had to put the tapes on that rewind thingy because you were too lazy to be kind to rewind at home. Fun fact, for a short time, that dude was me. Right, so pretty basic. The question at hand is whether or not the tech sector, with Silicon Valley as its figurehead proxy in the United States, has reached the end of creative destruction. Are we really innovating any longer? It's a question pondered by asshats like Peter Thiel, whom you know I dislike. But here he is pondering this very notion. There is a question how much, um, how much innovation is actually happening, and that's that, that I always come back to where I'm, I'm somewhat on the sort of uh, side that we've, we've had, you know, generally sort of limited progress in technology and science the last 50 years. There was, you know, a very big exception in computer software, internet, mobile internet the last quarter century. This was sort of this narrow cone of progress in the world of bits that, that, that really drove things. And, um, and I sort of wonder if, um, if um, there's actually less innovation possible even in those areas at this point. What's interesting about Thiel is that his prescriptions for curing what ails Silicon Valley and society in general are the exact opposite of what Agion and company determined from tomes of research. On Thiel's planet, people would drop out of college, the government would tax no one, and nation states would give way to corporate oligarchy. He's a classic libertarian in every sense. It's part of what drives me nuts about people like him. He's decrying the lack of innovation in the tech sector and claiming that real innovation hasn't taken place in 50 years. Now I'll grant him that, and you've heard me make this argument before. Iteration and improvements are distinct from true innovation. But if we look back to the period when people like Thiel believed innovation thrived in the United States and the European economies, they were characterized by three pillars investments into public education, public sector investments into private industry, and public welfare and social reforms. Obviously, the key word here is public, not private, public. Where we're aligned is in defining innovation. For better or for worse, many of the technologies we rely upon today came out of the Defense Department and the investments they made during World War II. On the positive side, or maybe not, we have the internet spawned from a research project within the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA. The internet was originally known as ARPANET, borrowing from the agency name. This led to innovations such as GPS, which is definitely a positive thing for me, at least, because I have the worst sense of direction in human history. It's a fact, look it up. Or electronic medical records, a concept that started among doctors in the VA looking for a better way to track the troubled and transient population of veterans returning from foreign wars. There's a flip side to that coin. On the flip side, of course, we have weapons of mass destruction and chemical agents used for biological and agricultural purposes, many of which have done more harm than good. Public sector investments into renewable energy, subsidizing companies like Tesla, for example, helped create an entire industry. Favorable trade agreements have allowed U.S. companies to plunder natural resources the world over, used to manufacture everything from clothing to the lithium battery in your phone. Microprocessing capabilities developed by the government in collaboration with universities subsidized by government research grants. The list goes on. True innovation in the United States can be traced back in a straight line to government-funded or supported trials.
Chapter 2 Innovation or Iteration A distinction must be made between innovation and entrepreneurship. The capitalist system allows for entrepreneurs of a certain background to thrive through access to capital, protections of physical and intellectual property, and a workforce that is available through exploitation or otherwise to perform critical functions that contribute to surplus wealth for the entrepreneur. The physical infrastructure, designed and maintained by several layers of government funding and agencies, allows for unfettered transport of goods and services. Financial systems matured over the past 200 years to help foster entrepreneurship through investment and low-cost capital as well. As Aguillon notes, quote, Financial development played a central role in stimulating innovation and enabling industrial takeoff in Europe in the 19th century. The creation of commercial banks and development banks, the emergence of equity financing and stock exchanges, the appearance of limited liability companies. These financial innovations dynamized real innovation and risk-taking, thereby enabling sustained and robust growth such as the world had never seen before 1820." End quote. Modern entrepreneurs like to pat themselves on the back and spin tales of their bootstrapping exploits. Self-made men are everywhere in places like Silicon Valley, men who came from nothing only to wind up at the top of the mountain. A mountain that rises above the roads, bridges, and tunnels built by the government that transport their goods without fear of being stolen. A mountain that rises high above the legal system that was designed to protect their interests and ideas from also being stolen. Ideas that originated in a lab somewhere in a government program or university setting only to be set free for the entrepreneur to build upon and take credit for. All while doing everything in his power to avoid paying taxes to the very same government responsible for his station in life. Once again, I'm deliberately using the male pronoun to describe this particular brand of asshat. Peter Thiel is right that true innovation has been scarce in the past 50 years. Iteration? Improvements? Sure, innovation, not so much. But he must have missed the chapter that explains where this true innovation started. The idea of creative destruction isn't necessarily unique. What made Schumpeter's view of it unique was his contention that it was necessary and positive to a point. Giants in the field of economics and the social sciences had been predicting the decline of capitalism at the hand of innovation for years. Keynes believed in the concept of what he called technological unemployment, whereby traditional laborers would be phased out of a capitalist system. Alvin Hansen called it secular stagnation. Thomas Malthus extrapolated his theory that the fixed production of agriculture would limit population growth to all sectors of the economy. But one of the great benefits of capitalism that challenged Malthusian theory was technological advances in agriculture production. Similarly, as we've spoken about before, M. King Hubbard predicted the end of fossil fuel production given the lifespan of proven oil reserves in the mid-20th century. New reserves, offshore drilling, hydraulic fracturing, and other advances staved off Hubbard's claim and allowed capitalist economies to continue drilling in the far reaches of the ocean and deep within the earth. From the Industrial Revolution forward, capitalism proved to be far more resilient than any of these great theorists imagined which is why you can find so many today who defend the system. That's not to say that an institutional rot can't set in. That's at the heart of the question today. Again, Agion, quote, The Industrial Revolution serves as an illustration of three fundamental principles of the paradigm of creative destruction. Namely, cumulative innovation is a driving force of growth. 
Institutions are critical, starting with property rights to protect innovation rents and more generally to foster innovation. And competition is necessary to combat the barriers to entry that existing firms and governments create to thwart the process of creative destruction in order to prevent new entrants from challenging their rents or their power, end quote. So let's build on this last point, the necessity of competition, because in many ways, Silicon Valley and our entire economic system today might be stretching boundaries not seen since the major combinations at the turn of the 20th century. There are contributing factors to healthy competition, tax policy, regulations, lobbying activity, capitalization. These factors contribute to a competitive landscape. Now, where Agion and team offer caution is in the credit markets, which might help explain the Silicon Valley quandary. Quote, relaxing credit constraints on incumbent firms allowed even the least productive incumbent firms to remain in the market, which in turn discourages new, potentially more productive firms from entering the market, end quote. What we can take from this is that one reason tech firms throughout the country have been able to thrive despite a lack of true technical innovations is due to an extended period of cheap money. Capital was simply so cheap and abundant that even the most mediocre firms appeared viable and less susceptible to external competitive threats. And many of the tech giants were able to snuff out competition by buying them outright with that same cheap money. The United States has been far more lenient in allowing firms to monopolize entire sectors than our European counterparts, as an example. Chapter 3. The So-Called Disruptors In terms of sector dominance, as the authors point out, innovation is linked closely to manufacturing and tech because other sectors like service, real estate, or education aren't ameliorated by economies of scale. But tech has crafted an especially boastful narrative. Tech nerd titans have been all the rage since Bill Gates became a billionaire and Mark Zuckerberg dropped out of Harvard. They fancy themselves disruptors. There's a theme in the movie Glass Onion where Ed Norton's character, loosely styled on the head fraudster himself, Elon Musk, delivers a speech on the nature of disruption. Nobody wants you to break the system itself. That is what true disruption is. The joke of it is that he's full of shit. That's actually the entire conceit of the movie. Also, it's not a very good movie. The first Knives Out, way more entertaining. Anywho, these so-called disruptors seem to be scrambling of late now that the Fed has turned off the spigot and investors are seeking actual returns in traditional sectors. When we covered the tech layoffs, a lot of it had to do with the post-COVID cooling off period of companies that thrived from being locked down. More time on social media, more time watching Netflix, more packages being delivered, more bandwidth required, more Zoom meetings and FaceTime. For a brief period, it looked like nothing would ever be the same. Until things went back to kind of being the same. And now they're coming into territory they haven't been in for 16 years. The last time the federal funds rate was this high. You know, right before the financial crisis. And the last time it was previously that high was in 1999, you know, right before the dot-com crash. So the investors know what's up. Wall Street knows what's up. The legacy tech giant leaders also know what's up, which is why you see them cutting payroll so aggressively. The Guardian article also takes kind of a sour view on the tech bro culture of disruption by really questioning how much they're disrupting. And it's a great take. Quote, 
Disruption depends on regarding people as participating in the business cycle who insist they're doing no such thing. And it depends on extending the sense in which the terms monopoly or oligopoly can be applied. Did big taxi companies once dominate personal transportation? Or did thousands of individual cabbies who were barely making ends meet? The term disruption makes a monolith of structures and organizations that are old, have grown up organically, and are therefore pretty scattered and decentralized. Think about the peculiar alchemy involved in talking about how Google disrupted the media landscape. Suddenly, the $100 billion company is a scrappy underdog and a magazine with 40 employees is a big bad monopolist, end quote. These so-called disruptors positioning themselves as the great capitalist liberators setting the working class free from the shackles of oligarchy suddenly doesn't sound as magnanimous when you put it this way. But this is all part of creative destruction, just without the bullshit hero's journey construct. Today's shiny new toy is ChatGPT. Together with Google's new competitor and several others that have already been in existence for years, these are impressive entrants into a space that has been in development for decades, and it's only now ripening on the vine. And AI will have a tremendous impact on myriad industries. But as sure as creative destruction is once again in the air, so too is the steady replacement of old renters for new renters. There's also competition on the horizon from other parts of the world. See, the tech sector, tech writ large, is being decentralized. For example, the tech sector in Israel is booming. South Korea and China have formidable sectors growing at exponential rates, in some cases entirely due to government subsidies. AI threatens to further decentralize the tech landscape, offering opportunities to new renters of all shapes, sizes, and geographic locations to bolt onto existing technologies and take them to new heights, iterations, and improvements, but hardly innovations. So as the Fed continues to push rates and tech gurus spend more time navel-gazing than fundraising, the question remains as to whether the United States has the right formula to prevent this late round of creative destruction from being the final chapter in a remarkable saga. The moment that we finally pivot towards Schumpeter's sober socialism. If we're to ingest the research of Agion's team and apply that to a wholesale strategy for the future, we have to return to the basic formulations of success. Quote, the protection of property rights, massive investment in education, proactive policy to support the development of large national leaders by means of subsidized credit, state procurement contracts, and export subsidies, end quote. Now, it is possible that salvation comes through the unlikely source of the Biden federal government, which is committed to the largest investment into infrastructure and technology since the Second World War. The one pillar that is missing and stands out like a sore thumb, however, is the investment into education. We've got education policy backwards in this country, and the right-wing House and Supreme Court are determined to move even further away from what's needed. And all of this ignores the biggest elephant in the room. Again, Agion, quote, exploding inequality, growth stalled for the past decade and a half, unrelenting climate disturbance, and now the COVID-19 pandemic that has laid bare the deficiencies of our economic and social systems. These very real phenomena are the bread and butter of proponents of isolationism and the end of globalization, of anti-growth partisans, 
and of those advocating for abandoning capitalism altogether. Capitalism is thus confronting an unprecedented identity crisis. No one can deny that capitalism, particularly when it is unregulated, has a number of adverse consequences. It exacerbates inequality and enables the strong to fetter the weak. It can fragment society and destroy the sense of community. It makes employment precarious, causing deterioration of individuals' health and increasing their stress. It enables incumbent firms to use lobbying to block the entry of new innovation firms. It aggravates global warming and climate change. It introduces financial crises that generate severe recessions such as those of 1929 and 2008. Bring it home, Max. As much as Aguillon's collection of data and essays provides a glimpse into the inner workings of capitalism and the support structures that must be in place to allow it to thrive, he concludes the team's findings with these sober sentiments by posing the ultimate quandary. Quote, a market economy, because it induces creative destruction, is inherently disruptive. But historically, it has proved to be a formidable engine of prosperity, hoisting our societies to levels of development unimaginable two centuries ago. Must we therefore resign ourselves to the serious pitfalls and defects of capitalism as the necessary price to pay to generate prosperity and overcome poverty? End quote. The more I contemplate these words, the more I dig into the voices of the past that both guided us and warned us, the more convinced I am that Schumpeter may be proven right in the long run. Perhaps creative destruction is the engine of entrepreneurship and that innovation has a natural life cycle. Perhaps we've reached the end of useful technology. Sure, we'll continue to improve upon it, making things faster, more efficient, and more powerful. But to what end? We already have the capacity to feed the poor, house the homeless, provide more leisure and security, ensure dignified retirements, and provide health care to all. We simply choose not to. There are other countries that choose to provide these things, and their citizens have just as much wearable technology as we do. They can access ChatGPT, search the internet. They can also smoke good weed and watch free porn. The proletariat probably isn't going to rise up for one simple reason. There isn't a proletariat. Yeah, we're laborers, we're service workers, bureaucrats and renters of technology that has developed through creative destruction of legacy systems and thinking, and the mediocre firms who muddled their way through the past two generations of technological advancements did so due to the largesse of the cheap money fed and government contracts. With the fed chickens coming home to roost and conservatives fighting tooth and nail against investments into the pillars of the very capitalist structures they hold so dear, we find ourselves in a strange predicament designing a future where everyone has a smartphone on a dead planet. The ultimate example of creative destruction at the hands of mercenary capitalists. Here endeth the lesson. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Post-Show Musings. Here solo again, as I uh, let everybody know during show notes, that 99's a little under the weather. She'll be back in next week. 
She did not want to come into our tiny little space here and infect the place with germs. So I appreciate you 99 and miss you very dearly. Say what's up to Manny Faces behind the glass somewhere in Atlanta, but behind the glass nonetheless. Resources for today. The book love, as you heard, there are two. Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy by Joseph Schumpeter and The Power of Creative Destruction, Economic Upheaval, and the Wealth of Nations by Philippe Aguillon, Deline Antonin, and Simon Bunel. It's probably Simon Bunel. The book by Schumpeter, by the way, any of Schumpeter's work, I find it to be kind of inaccessible. It, it, it's a slog to get through it. So the way that I treat capitalism, socialism, and democracy is as kind of a, a resource on the bookshelf that I'll dip in and out of. Sitting down and reading it from start to finish is a little above my pay grade. Very flowery language. A lot of uh, tributaries that seem to go nowhere. His central thesis, though, is is just so great. He really was one of the great thinkers that we had in the last century. So I encourage you to have that book on hand if you like this shit, but uh, it's probably not something you're going to sit by the fire and, you know, open up with a, with a nice bottle of Cabernet. Can't have Merlot anymore because of, uh, what was that movie? Oh yeah, Sideways with Paul Giamatti. Such a good movie, but it ruined Merlot for everybody. What a shame. Anyway, so yeah, nice bottle of Cabernet sitting there, feet up by the fire. You're not reading this book. You're probably reading something a lot more fun. The Power of Creative Destruction, on the other hand, is kind of breezy. If you look past all the economic models and formulations and just read the results of it, it's pretty cool. And what I really like about it is that it's timely. It's one of the books that just came out. I think it came out after the pandemic, for sure. Uh, Might have come out, I think, last year. And it has a lot of really good resources because they model the importance of the law, natural resources, property rights, intellectual property, just having a great physical infrastructure, all of the things that really make the United States special and an outlier. And it's interesting because, you know, this does wade into a territory that defends capitalism more than it shits on it. And that that might be an uncomfortable reality for, you know, the Marxists of the group or the democratic socialists of the group. But there are things that capitalism delivered Yes, I get less lost in in the benef- in the benefits versus the you know the uh, the downsides of capitalism over the last two hundred years because I think they're so obvious, they're so painfully obvious that the working class bore the brunt of it, the planet bore the brunt of it, and there were so many terrible things about it. The point of democratic socialism, which is I think the ideology that I lean the closest to, is that it acknowledges the benefits of capitalism, like I've said before, even Marx considered capitalism to be a net positive for the world. Now, he couldn't have thought about climate change back then or modeled any of that, but he saw it as a net positive because it was the thing that delivered us from feudalism and mercantilism and monarchies into, you know, democracies and wider open economies that would eventually liberate the working class. But then, of course, capitalism figured out how to continually suppress the working class and keep them working just enough on the edge and participating enough in it that they would, you know, have a place there forever. But Schumpeter has the benefit of a lot of that hindsight and is able to then build that into his theories. And now, of course, we have, you know, people like Thomas Piketty and uh, obviously the writers of this book that are able to look at it another 70 years past Schumpeter and model that as part of their equation as well and say, you know, we might, we might actually be coming close to Schumpeter's end than we even realize. 
because of the fact that we are destroying so much of the planet and we have not allowed enough people to to rise through the ranks to participate socioeconomically in in society. They also get, you know, paint a picture of other societies. And again, it's always the example, but a lot of the Scandinavian countries that opted to allow their people to participate in it and create a robust welfare state. And maybe they're not the, you know, where innovation started, but they're the beneficiaries of a lot of the innovation that's out there. Like I said, they all have access to the internet as well. Like we're not that fucking special. And in many cases, a lot of these countries have leapfrogged us in terms of access, bandwidth, broadband, and all of that. So really interesting stuff to ponder. I know that this was a little bit more of a thought experiment and maybe a little more in the weeds than than people might have liked. But I think it's important for us to wrap our, our heads around this because we're coming into a very, very tricky era. We've got massive economic intervention from the central government, but they're pouring it through the private sector. And you've got the private sector for some reason fighting back against this central authority that is giving them all this money. The big reality here is what the Fed has been doing. So as of this recording, the Fed just increased despite the SVB collapse and, and the signature bank collapse, despite the fact that they've been saying out loud that they're gonna try to push 2 million people into unemployment that are currently employed and gainfully so, despite all of these factors, because they you know only have limited tools at their disposal, they increased rates another quarter percent. Yes, it makes things harder for the consumer. Yes, it's gonna put people out of work, but it is also exposing the cracks in Silicon Valley because they did thrive on that cheap money. You know, 0% money is not as risky as money that is at, you know, seven, 8%. And that's what they're looking at right now. Federal funds might be foreign change, but that means that prime is three higher than that. And the risky you are, you're probably losing more from a venture capitalist. The venture capitalist is gonna take more of the piece of the pie, the ownership pie up front. They're putting more of their capital at risk and it's more expensive to finance it. So this is gonna send shockwaves through the Silicon Valleys, through Washington State, through New York, through Austin, Texas, through all the places that we consider the hotbed of so-called innovation. And it is going to artificially suppress some investments into it. Cash is once again gonna be king. You're gonna see a lot of that sitting on the sidelines and dry powder and sitting on balance sheets, you know, maybe even going back into the fixed asset market so that, you know, people are just gonna ride the wave. That's devastating to innovation. And then again, maybe that's okay because all of the innovation so far has been, you know, kind of wonderful if you think about extending our lifespan or having the power of, of computing in our pockets and being able to access information freely. But in every instance, there's a downside to all of that. There's a downside to the, the cultural connections that we have, to the social connections and the social fabric of a, what makes a true functioning society. There's, you know, obviously huge downsides to the planet, like that smartphone in your pocket, which you should take out of your front pocket, maybe stick in your back pocket, but that smartphone in your pocket came from a really, really dirty process. And it's, you know, that contributed to destroying the planet. So there's, there's always a downside risk, even to the most fundamental of innovations, iterations, improvements, or next new, you know, happy technology. So Anyway, uh, there's a couple of articles that I had in here, TechCrunch, and uh, it was one I didn't quote specifically, but I kind of relied on it because it's called, is Silicon Valley really losing its crown? 
Uh, but you need a subscription for that, so you know, don't fucking worry about it. And then uh, the Guardian, which is actually a really good think piece. They have a lot of good stuff, I have to say. I'm a little wary of their foreign desk, but anyway. So that's that. Substackers would have received the message, hopefully by now, that uh, we've migrated everything to unftr.com. That's where everything lives from this point forward. So a massive effort went into that. There's a few people that uh, 99 tapped on the shoulder to help with that. You know who you are, and we are eternally grateful for that, for that love, that support, and the care that you put into it. So thank you for that. And uh, 99, of course, spearheading all of it, which uh, just is why everything is so good. You don't find podcasts with websites this robust. So what are you looking for? Every single note from every single episode is online for everyone to see. There are accessibility tools that she has built in to make it easier to access this stuff. The essays will now all be built there, you know, and the essays serving as the quasi transcripts for the show. You've got our merch links in there. You've got the coffee store and, you know, to be able to purchase coffee, you can do the, all that in one shopping environment. Got information about the show, some of the different features that we've quoted before. So everything can be found under one umbrella. Just again, thank you, 99, and the team that you tapped to uh, to pull that together because it's, it's massively important. As always, this show, unfucking, oh God, I don't have 99 here to, I don't know why I stumble on this. It's so funny. But as always, Unfucking the Republic is engineered. I don't think he likes that term anymore. Manny, you punch in and say what the fuck you do, right? Well, it's not that I don't like it. It's just that it's not completely accurate. In a traditional sense, the engineer is the person who sits behind the board and adjusts the faders. And it's used in more of a you know, music recording sense or maybe in radio. You have an engineer that's working the board. That's not really what happens here. Uh, I'm not even there. You know, there's no board. You just record and, and we go. Editing and arranging is basically the bulk of what I do, and it's a much more intricate process, and I think those terms better reflect the work that I do, particularly when using you know common podcast industry vernacular. So, edited and arranged by... Sound design maestro, Manny Faces. It's lovingly produced by the all-powerful 99. I'm your host, Max. You can find me on the YouTubes. If you haven't subscribed yet, please give us a subscribe. And remember, just put a couple of the longer videos on in the background so I can get the hours in there to be part of the creator circle. Everything else you need to know is on unftr.com. The original music for this show is produced by the great Tom McGovern. That's it. That's that. And we'll catch you next week.